Good morning, church. My name is Lauren Fitter. Today's teaching text comes from Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to do what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you were responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Your word is eternal. Thank you for giving us your word. God, may you open our hearts and our minds to learn wisdom from it. Amen. Hey friends, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent in the Christian calendar. And we kick off Lent with the observation of Ash Wednesday, where during an Ash Wednesday service, we'll make the sign of the cross on one another's foreheads in ashes and say either you're dust and to dust you will return or repent and believe the gospel. Now this year, because the roads were bad and because of the complexities of hosting guests in our building, we made the decision to cancel our service, but uh, we'll do it again next year. Ash Wednesday and Lent are really important because they bring into focus two fundamental realities. One is our mortality, and two is our need to be redeemed. To, ad to admit that we're mortal, that we're dust, pops the bubble of self-importance. And it's really important to know that no matter how cool or powerful or wealthy you are, you're going to die. Maybe not today, maybe not for a really long time, but you're going to die. And that awareness and that reality puts you on the same playing field as everybody else. To accept and to reflect on our mortality is an extension of the first confession that one makes in going down the ancient path, that God is God and we are not. Apart from God breathing his breath of life into us and causing us to be living beings, we are dust. And this is resonant of one of my favorite psalms to quote at memorial services. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain hearts of wisdom. Ash Wednesday teaches us that we're dust. And the season of Lent reminds us that we need to be redeemed. We're sinful. Today in our study of the ancient path, we look into the face of an unpleasant but obvious to other people reality. And it's the foolishness of God's people. None of us journey down the ancient path alone, and sometimes we look to the left or the right and we look in the mirror, and at times we catch glimpses of greatness. Many other times we see utter depravity and folly and insolence. At times this invites embarrassed head shaking or laughter, and at others, embittered weeping. Now, the passage that we've just read in Genesis 16 is one that is more likely to evoke a response of the latter. It breaks our heart. 
In fact, I can imagine for Abram and Sarai, it's one that they wish could be stricken from the record or quietly swept under the rug. If you'll remember the story, God had promised Abram and Sarai, the patriarchs of the faith, that through their biological family, God was going to bless all of the families of the world. But time has gone on and the promise is yet to be fulfilled. They saw no signs that anything was changing. Abram and Sarai were octogenarians and they probably were not accustomed to seeing other octogenarians pushing their own babies around in strollers. If hope deferred makes the heart sick, then Sarai's sick heart prompted her to take sad action. Look at verse 2 in the story. Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarai's language here is really depressing and Uh, Her language stands in stark contrast to the language that God used when he first called Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 12, where God said that he would build a family through them. In her posture of deferred and disappointed hope, she decided to take a shortcut. Rather than waiting on God to fulfill his promise, she decided she herself would get the ball rolling. And shortcuts or plans to expedite God's promises almost almost always go poorly for the people of God in the long run. Driven by hubris and impatience, they rarely achieve what they set out to, and they often leave a wake of victims, just as we'll see in this story. But Abram is a man of God. Abram knows better. Abram's going to be our hero who steps in and like gets things in order. His faith has been tested and tried. Sarai is slipping, but Abram's going to figure things out. What's the next verse say? Abram agreed to what Sarai said and slept with her servant, Hagar. Now forgive me, but does this passage not demonstrate that our biblical forebears are just like us? Abram appears very much a dude in this chapter. Not exactly throwing a fit of moral outrage that his wife was suggesting that he sleep with a younger woman. And with no recorded objection, Abram quietly acquiesces and complies to Sarai's terrible idea. Now, Sarai's sin here was initiating a shortcut, not trusting God to fulfill his promises and presuming authority to act on her own. Abram's sin was Adam's sin. It was passivity. It was just sitting there and watching it happen. Hey, you want to buy to this fruit, Adam? Sure, I could eat. Hey, you want to sleep with my slave, Abram? Okay, I could do that. The Apostle Paul said that the people of God were like a jar of clay, fragile and ordinary, but bearing the treasure of the gospel. Sometimes, like in passages like this, the people of God can feel more like a discarded slurpy cup sitting in a gutter crawling with ants. Not only unglorious, but at times just gross, And one rightly wonders if it can bear anything truly worthy or lovely. Now, I want you to note here in the passage, uh, Hagar, Sarah's uh, Egyptian slave, she's not consulted about this plan or her involvement in it. And when she gets pregnant, the text tells us that she despises her mistress. She resents Sarai. It's like, gee, I wonder why. But Sarai comes to her senses. She's a woman of God. And she finally takes personal responsibility for initiating this ungodly plan. Look at verse 5. 
No, Sarai said to her husband Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. How dare you, Abram, she argues, for impregnating my servant. Now she hates me. Who put this idea into your head? Abram, seeing that Sarai is off her rocker, finally takes charge of the situation as a godly man. Verse 6, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. So what did she think was the best thing to do? Sarai mistreated Hagar and she fled. Sarai's sin was the shortcut. Abram's sin uh, was passivity. But their sin together compounded and created a victim in Hagar. They used and abused and now cut loose this poor woman. Now, in preparing to preach, uh, uh, there's a resource that I often go to. I have this fabulous 29-volume commentary series by ancient church fathers. And you can read uh, tons of things that they wrote, especially fathers from the first three centuries of the church, what they said and thought about any number of passages in the Bible. And it's really a treasury of wisdom. But when it came to this passage... I was frankly rather surprised by how quick the fathers were to either absolve Abram and Sarai or spin the interpretation of the passage in such a way that their actions seemed virtuous. In my opinion, serious ideological gymnastics are required to read this story in a non-creepy and non-abusive way. While I am the first to admit that I am not worthy to untie Augustine's sandals, he and many others, I think, read this passage wrongly. Like so often happens in the community of faith, their loyalty and regard for these foundational leaders blinded them to their ineptitude, their foolishness, and their wicked behavior. Their importance and the weight of their ministry doesn't justify or nullify their wrongdoing. I wonder, for many of you who've been kind of in Christian circles for a while, how many books or how many like uh, videos have you discarded and you no longer use because the pastors who wrote them or recorded them turned out to be monsters? And it grieves one's soul to hear story after story after story of the person or leader of a prominent ministry or church who didn't just screw up a little, not just one affair, but demonstrated patterns of destructive behavior over a period of months and years and even decades. It's one thing to hear stories of young pastors like the one in New York City who is like the pastor to the stars, but it's another one to hear stories of stalwarts like Ravi Zacharias, defender and champion of the faith, whose wrongdoings are too shameful, even too predatory, to begin to enumerate here. Now, sometimes a Christian leader's wrongdoing isn't a clear violation of the Ten Commandments, and you wish that there was something that you could point to, but the smell is just off. There's something about it that you just know in your bones, this isn't right, and your gut tells you, like, like something here is off. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson, who died without a moral scandal, uh, wrote about just this very thing. He said, diagnosing the sins of the Spirit by pastors are often difficult. Is this outburst of zeal energetic obedience, or is it human presumption? Is this exuberant confidence holy boldness inspired by the Holy Spirit, or a boastful arrogance fed by an anxious ego? 
Is this assertive leadership, courageous faith, or self-importance? Is this suddenly prominent preacher with a large and admiring following, a spiritual descendant of Peter with 5,000 repentant converts, or of Aaron indulging his tens of thousands with a religious song and dance around a golden calf? Peterson says it's not easy to tell. He goes on to say, the religious leader is the most untrustworthy of leaders. In no other station do we have so many opportunities for pride, for covetousness, for lust, or so many excellent disguises at hand to keep such ignobility from being found out and called to account. Friends, be so careful not to idolize pastors or Christian leaders or anyone. Don't do it. For one reason, it violates the Ten Commandments. I know pastors. I am a pastor, and I know most of us are not worth giving that much credit. I say this not because I have any particular skeletons in the closet that I'm afraid of coming out, but because, like every other pastor I know, I'm a recovering sinner who's trying to live in to my redeemed identity in Christ. And my faithfulness in living into that identity waxes and wanes. Idolizing or over-glorifying pastors is additionally dangerous because it feeds our sense of self-importance, which can blind us to our own depravity and humanity. Beware the pastor who has drunk his or her own Kool-Aid, and beware the church that keeps handing them glasses of it. Pastors are not by default, or Christian leaders are not by default, categorically better people. Often, it's just that we are the ones who have microphones. This week, uh, Jackie Hill Perry said, There are people in our local churches that have more godliness than half of the famous Christians we look to. It's observable, too, because we can get beyond what they say and get close to who they really are. I, for one, hope to be as godly as some of the people in our church. I hope that someday I have the prayer life and the faithfulness in prayer as some of the people who are in our church. Pastors are often not better people. But pastors are different. Because pastors and faith leaders, to some extent, represent God or God's word, our destructive capacity is enhanced or amplified over many other people. And this reality puts the fear of God in me. And as a consequence of pastors' destructive capacity being realized, so many people have come to our church defensive, with a limp, with hidden wounds, with just like a pocket full of hope left because they were used and abused and cut loose by the last church or the last pastor that they encountered. In fact, I suspect that there are people who are listening to this podcast later on or watching this sermon online who you like finally had the courage during COVID to leave the last church you were in or step out of the pastoral authority of someone who you didn't trust during COVID. And you've been listening and kind of sampling online and like enjoying being at a distance from a local congregation because you've been so hurt and you are so terrified to go and join a local congregation again, like terrified that you're going to find that there are regular human beings in there too. You're not in any hurry to re-engage because you don't want to get hurt again. Now, one of the things that uh, compounds many people's church wounds is that when they spoke up about what they saw, 
They had the experience of no one listening or no one caring. Or even worse, they got, they got responses justifying the wrongdoing or making them think they're crazy or they're the problem. And consequently, for many people, those church wounds run really deep. Wounded and reeling, Hagar, uh, the servant of Sarai, hits the road and runs away from the abuse. And the text tells us that the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar as she's fleeing Sarai in the desert. And the angel says to her, imagine how important this would be for Hagar. It says, the Lord has heard your misery. And the Lord is going to bless your son too. Going to make him into a nation as well. He too is going to have too many descendants to count. And Hagar responds to the angel of the Lord saying, You are the God who sees me. Though some of the church fathers later couldn't perceive the harm done to Hagar, God perceived it. God understood. And God says, communicates to Hagar, I hear you, I see you. And he validates her heartache. And the text reflects for us that she feels heard and seen, naming God El Roi, the God who sees me. But it's also striking that in the text, the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, go back. Now, because of human sinfulness, restoration after spiritual abuse is not always possible. But I want you to note in the text here that God doesn't rush to that conclusion here, that restoration is impossible. His goal is restored relationships. Now, some of you who've received wounds from the church have been unable to be healed because your wounds have been invalidated or suppressed. You may have told nobody else what happened. But I just want you to hear that the Lord says to you that the wrongs that you've experienced in church are real. You're not crazy. He gets it. He hears you. He, he sees you. He understands. And at the same time, and with the gentleness and the wisdom and the authority that like only God has, hear him also say, go back. Now, you may not be able to go back to that local church. You might not be able to submit again to that spiritual leader, but don't give up altogether on Christ's church. And know that there's going to be a day of reckoning when every word and action for good and for bad will finally be revealed. And those who've been entrusted with the care of God's people are going to be held to an account. There will be a day of reckoning. It's impossible to tell the story of God's people, the story of the church, without admitting that there have been times we have blown it spectacularly. Not only not living up to what we profess, but actually out sending people outside the church. And we just have to own this. And like Nehemiah, repenting not only of his own sins in Nehemiah chapter 1, but also on behalf of the sins of his people. So we need to own that our people, that fellow sojourners on the ancient path, and we ourselves have fallen short of our calling. We can't tell the story of the church truthfully, without a realistic rendering of our own brokenness and sin. And for each of us individual, you can say, I can't tell my own story 
the story of my own life without witness of my own shortcomings and failure and idolatry and rebellion. To be truthful and candid about this, like David in Psalm 51, reflecting on his failures and his wickedness toward Bathsheba and Uriah, to be truthful and candid about this is to keep ourselves on the road to wholeness or to return to it. Followers of Jesus must be truth-tellers about ourselves, neither, neither overly believing our own press nor denying the good things that God is doing in us. We must not be spin doctors, prematurely rushing to a silver lining after failures or putting makeup on a pig and calling it beautiful. We must candidly confess our destructive behaviors and our destructive capacity. And Lent brings this everyday awareness into sharp focus, as does communion. When each one of us are invited to examine ourselves, to confess our sins, and to receive fresh forgiveness and grace. Being real about our destructive potential is to live in reality. But at the same time, we must reject cynicism and stay hopeful also about our redeemed potential and our redeemed capacity in Christ. Just this week in our church, we saw the beauty of the church in action. Early in the week, my friend Amy in our church posted about the need for congregations to open up their facility. Ben in our church texted me and said, John, we've got to do something. Ashley scrambled and put together infrastructure, and so many of you sprang into action. You brought meals, and you put together giveaway bags, and you brought supplies, and you picked up cots, and you scraped sidewalks, and you played puzzles, and you plunged toilets, and you stayed up all hours of the night with our guests. Some of you who were at the check-in table exited your comfort zone and checked in weapons. You prayed, and you played with our guests. And it was really a defining moment for our church as we leveraged our formation in the way of Jesus for the benefit of others. Beauty and brokenness, service and sinfulness, destructive and redeemed potential are always close at hand. The church can be one complicated, hot mess and a dumpster fire, but she can also be breathtakingly beautiful. As we journey down the ancient path, we need to be ever conscious of both of these realities. Holding in open hand our accomplishments, being so ready to repent and to confess our failures, avoiding at all costs pretense or trying to puff one another or ourselves up with hubris and pride. I need to admit that the beauty that's displayed through us is often in spite of us. It's God working out his goodness. God like crying out from like the slurpy cup of the church, showing his beauty to the world. But these possibilities are always there. It also positions us as we're confessing our sins and our failures and our ineptitudes to being in this place where we're truly and utterly desperate for the breath of God to breathe in us again making us together into a redeemed living being, a conduit through which the blessing and the favor and the kindness of God can be shown in the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as always, we, we just confess how deeply we need you. 
We confess that we've, we've not loved our neighbor as ourself, we've failed to be an obedient church, that we've been judgmental, that we've been ungenerous, we've been stingy at times. We confess that we're, we're often so self-obsessed that we don't even care about what you think about a given situation. We've been, we've been shaped by lots of other allegiances and loyalties, Lord Jesus, and we just ask you to forgive us and to redeem and to reshape us into your image. Help us, Lord Jesus, to learn from the wisdom and from the failures of, of those who've gone down the ancient path before us. And for the sake of your son Jesus and for the glory of your name in the world, would it please you, Lord, to just like fill us with your spirit again. Give us a specific sense of calling to our city and to our neighborhoods. Help us to know what faithfulness looks like. Give us more often glimpses and opportunities of the church in her beauty. I want to pray blessings over all of our guests who are with us this week, Lord Jesus. Help us to be ever mindful of the poor. Help us in our opulence, in our, in our plenty, to be aware of those who have little and to be generous and willing to share. Lord, we trust that in all things you're working for good. We trust that all of human history is working toward its consummation when Christ returns. And so even as we, we wait, increase our hope, and also increase our grit and our ability and eagerness to hop in and get our hands dirty. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, friends, wherever you are, as you go, I don't know, into your living room, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. God loves you. See you around.